0: There probably have been times in your life, in all of our lives, when we stop and ask ourselves the question, why am I not happy? Why am I not content? Why am I not satisfied? What is the cause of this dissatisfaction that we sometimes feel? The common view, one which we hear a lot about in our culture, the common view is that we're not getting what we want. We must not have the right relationship, or the right job, or the right body, or the right uh, temperament, or we must be psychologically neurotic, or something. We believe that happiness and satisfaction are somehow found in somewhere else, in attaining something that we don't have, in becoming something that we are not. This practice asks asks us to look at this question, is this true? It's certainly true that when we don't get what we want, we can feel quite frustrated, and we can feel like a failure. And so it is very easy to imagine that if only I had gotten the job, then I would, etc. But then we may also notice in our lives, and many of us, I'm sure, have gotten much of what we wanted, what we set out to get, when we do get what we want, how long does the satisfaction last? That's a whole other interesting question. A Hollywood actress, I don't remember who, once said, it's not true that money can't buy happiness. It can, for 30 minutes. The first piece of jewelry was a real thrill, for 30 minutes. So was the first Mercedes. Then it turned into just a car. Most of the time, if we're honest with ourselves, we have to admit that the satisfaction of getting what we want is rather fleeting. It doesn't really bring the happiness, the enduring happiness and peace that we seek. I once read a story about the then world's most wealthy man. I don't know if he still is, but he was described as having, you know, everything he could want and desire. He had ten houses all over the world, all staffed with servants and cars. He had a wife and children. He had a high-powered job. He had many girlfriends. But do you know how his friends described him? This was the most interesting part. They said, restless and bored. Always on the move, always going to the next place, looking for the next desire to be satisfied. A recent issue of Time Magazine talked about the paradox of prosperity. Here we are in our 90s economy here, booming away, doing extremely well. Is it making people happier? This was the question. Well, maybe they asked the wrong people, but the people they did ask said no. What was happening was they were working longer hours working harder and longer just to keep up, even though they could recognize that they had already a lot more than their parents had had. Why weren't they happy? There have also been many, many happiness studies in the psychological world. People love to study happiness. <laughs> and over many years of studying different Um, different uh, correlates of happiness, they have not found what it is that makes people happy. They find it's not correlated with amount of money, it's not correlated with one's family life, with having children or not, with one's status in the world, that none of these correlate with a person's real sense of happiness. So now I understand that researchers have turned their eyes in the direction of looking for a happiness gene. (laughs) That perhaps that will explain why it is that some people are happy and others just aren't no matter what. So, it's true that in our consumer culture we are very conditioned we are led in the direction of, of believing that money and material possessions are the key to happiness. I was working on my uh, little Mac PowerBook one day when the screensaver comes up with all these quotes, you know, and the quote that came up was, all I ask is the chance to prove that money can't make me happy.
1: <laughs> <laughs> We're all...
0: We would like that, wouldn't we? Our consumer culture thinks up ways to make us want things. Our gross national product actually depends on us keeping our desires at a fever pitch, always buying something new, new to taste, to see, to try, to adorn ourselves with. I grew up in the 50s, and I remember... Having a typewriter, (laughs) it sounds positively archaic now. Just a manual typewriter, it seemed like a really good thing to have. Then they became electric, then they turned into word processing, and that was very exciting. Now we have computers, we have the internet, we have the web, we have email. Video mail is coming, and virtual reality is beginning to boom. We have so many models of computers to choose from, so many software programs that keep coming. You know, this whole thing of upgrading is relentless. You just settle in. You finally (laughs) figure out, you know, what kind of a deal you need, and the next thing you read is that you're being upgraded. I don't even want to be upgraded, but it seems like there's this pressure always to get the next thing. In California, we have a lot of coffee houses. I suppose you have them here too, but it's really gotten quite amusing when you go into a coffee place with a friend and They order, you know, the most specific thing, like one friend of mine will order his mocha latte, half cap, half decaf with nonfat milk. (laughs) What happened to the old cup of coffee? I also know that whenever I return from a third world country like, like India and I go, come back here and, like, go to the market, you know, get a few things in to supply the the kitchen, and I think, oh, well, I'll get some soup. Well, my goodness, soup. It sounds so simple when you say it, but then you go and you start looking at all the varieties of soup that are possible, and one could spend, you know, quite a bit of time just researching and reading labels and comparing and deciding, and... ah. Uh, Does all this choice lead to calmness of being, contentment, serenity, ease? Or does it put a certain burden of complexity and comparing on our minds, always sort of giving us the sense that we're maybe choosing the wrong thing, or maybe we don't have enough, maybe we should have gotten that instead of this, Am I missing out on something? I mentioned the other night that I spent some time doing Zen practice. And there was a chant we did that I've always remembered. Desires are inexhaustible. I vow to put an end to them. Impossible. But here's the truth. And it is called the second noble truth of the Buddha's teaching. It was his very subtle and penetrating insight that, yes, desires are inexhaustible, that the force of craving in the human mind is endless. There is no end to craving. We will always want something to be different. Here's the insight. It is the craving itself which is the root cause of our discontent and dis-ease in life. This not understanding of the nature of craving is what keeps us endlessly seeking, thinking that we will find that ultimate satisfaction if we just get the next thing. This Tibetan... Lama Dijram Rinpoche put it this way quite vividly. He said your deadliest enemies, the ones who have kept you tied to samsara through countless lives from beginningless time up until the present are the grasping and the grasped. This tendency that we all Inherit by virtue of being human. In Pali, the word for craving or wanting or grasping is tanha, tanha. And literally translated, it means unslakeable thirst. unslakable, not satisfiable. The Buddha in the Dhammapada said, The rain could turn to gold, and still your thirst would not be slaked. Desire is unquenchable and ends in tears. I've always thought it was interesting, I think it was the first thing that caught my attention about the story of the Buddha's life, was that he was a person who had the opportunity in the early part of his life, living as a prince, to have every worldly desire completely satisfied. He was a young man, a prince, with wealth and power and sensual pleasures abounding in his princely life. And yet, all know the story. He left that life in search of a deeper meaning, a deeper sense of happiness and peace. And as many of us do in searching, he took up a path that seemed just the opposite of that life. It was the path of a wandering ascetic, where he denied himself, thinking that this would be the way happiness. He denied himself any kind of sense pleasure, including not eating. And so there are some statues of the Buddha where he's depicted as a very emaciated, almost skeletal person. He finally realized that that also wasn't bringing him the liberation and happiness that he sought. And so out of that he began to eat a little bit more, his strength came back, and the middle way of moderation between extremes began to be born in the Buddha's own experience. Not having too much, not having too little, but finding the middle path. And so it was that he sat down under the Bodhi tree and determined to discover his own liberation. And he found that the way to not being driven by craving was to understand deeply and immediately and profoundly the nature of desire itself. And so that we can do this as well in our practice we are encouraged not to jump up every time we have a desire and run around looking for a way to satisfy it, but we are encouraged through the practice of mindfulness to explore, to begin to see in our own experience the nature of desire, how it manifests in our bodies, in our minds, in our hearts. And we don't have to look far. We can look at almost any sitting that we have experienced here. We can look at what occurs in our practice. Certainly we notice, as many of you have mentioned, so much thinking. We're sitting down to meditate and suddenly there's all this barrage of spontaneous Spontaneous mental activity. Thinking, thinking, thinking. Now if you look a little closer, you may notice that much of it has to do with the play of wanting. Imaginary conversations with others. What you wish you had. What would make your meditation better. What you would like to be doing instead of meditating. What you are going to do when you get home, (laughs) if you ever make it. (laughs) Romantic fantasies, sexual fantasies, strategies for solving problems in our lives. Fears of imagined disappointments or failures. Revengeful encounters with those that you're having difficulty with fantasies of attaining that success that you've always longed for. This is not uncommon, I imagine you recognize a bit of this. After exploring in this way, it seems fairly obvious that the desire that we see in our own experience for things to be other than they are is rather pervasive. We could even say relentless, inexhaustible. Wanting things to be different than they are. Right now. Take a look. What do you need? For What do you need to be different? Right now. It's right there, isn't it? So we can see this dissatisfaction at work in our experience. We can also reflect on some of the larger movements of craving in our lives, times when we have felt that our well-being absolutely depended on the attainment of fill-in-the-blank, you know, whether it was the relationship, or the child, or the job, or the ice cream soda, or fill in the blank. Like a friend of mine's daughter, when she was about three years old, um, told her father she wanted some ice cream, and he was saying, well, I don't know if that's so good for you. She said, Daddy, I need it! I need it! (laughs) And we do feel that way at times. It's not just an idle want; it's we need it.
1: <laughs>
0: We've all experienced those times in our lives. There's a a woman by the name of Margot Anand who writes about tantric sexuality, and she tells us some interesting uh, facts. She said, the average orgasm lasts 10 seconds. The average frequency of intercourse is once or twice a week. That's 20 seconds a week. (laughs) One and a half minutes a month. 18 minutes a year. And that's if we're fortunate for one and a half minutes of ecstasy a month. How many hundreds of hours do we devote to thinking about sex, daydreaming about sex, wishing for sex, planning for sex? Isn't it amazing? Upendita Sayadaw put it this way. He said, lust cracks the brain. (laughs) We're not at our most rational, (laughs) wise, calm, compassionate best when we're lost in that kind of intensity of passion. So whether it's that nudgy dissatisfaction on the cushion or that driving sense of passion for something in our lives, I think both of these this whole spectrum, these these examples that we can relate to in our lives really illustrate some of the things that are useful to know about the actual nature of craving, the nature of tanha. I think the first useful thing to know is that this state of craving is a trance state. It's like we've taken a hallucinogenic drug and in that state everything in the world appears different. We lose perspective in that state. We see only what it is we want. It's like the old saying, when a pickpocket meets a saint, all he sees are the saint's pockets. In that state, in that trance, we become very focused. Our thinking may become quite obsessive. Control and manipulation are the dominant modes of of strategy. And we imagine that our well-being is completely dependent on the attainment of the desired object, that we won't survive without it. The Buddha said that we perceive the desirable object, whatever it is, as having feathers. It's like we see when we are in the trance of desire, the object that we want appears in a way that is very attractive. It has special qualities. We imbue the object or project onto it the power to satisfy us we project onto it all kinds of desirable qualities that it may or may not possess. Certainly falling in love is probably one of the best examples of this, how suddenly this person appears to be the one of our dreams. Some of you I know have heard about the Vipassana romance, commonly known as the VR. Those of you who haven't should know, in case this is coming up in your practice, that this is one of the many retreat phenomena that we talk about, the famous VR. It is that sudden noticing of the yogi in the dining room that looks and acts and eats and moves and practices like the Deva of your dreams, the person that you're sure is meant for you, and how wonderful to meet on a meditation retreat. We have shared interests, we can sit together, we'll have the same values, and off you go. This is not at all uncommon. Of course, it's also balanced by the opposite, which is known as the VV which is the Vipassana Vendetta. (laughs) For those aversive types, it's the one that is doing everything wrong, and we are just can't wait to see how they're going to realize the error of their ways. In any case, this ability we have to project our desires out onto the world It's really quite phenomenal, really quite phenomenal. The other thing about this trance state of desire that we can notice, actually, is how predominant the sense of me and mine becomes. When we're in the grip of a desire, I mean, you're not having your neighbor's desire, you know, you're not having just anybody's desire. The desire is very much connected to your own sense of self. I think I'll tell the a story. This is a true story that happened in uh, the Bay Area in California where I live. And it's a story about a man who had a kind of unique business and that is that he owned a blimp and the business was that he, he took people out in his blimp and toured the Bay Area and allowed them to see the sights in this way. So one day...
1: <laughs> oh,
0: I see. No, we're not back with a lawn chair. This is the theme, isn't it? That we're developing here. I don't know. I read these stories. I no lawn chairs. No lawn chairs.
1: <laughs>
0: he had been out with a group of people touring. They came back to the airstrip where he had kept the blimp, and they had all... The blimp was on the ground, and everybody had gotten out. And, you know, blimps are filled with helium, so they rise rather easily. And I guess the, the uh, rope that secured the blimp to the ground somehow got <laughs> loose, and he had his back to the blimp, and when he turned around, he saw his...
1: <laughs>
0: this is a sad story.
1: <laughs> really, it is. I don't know. We're off.
0: Maybe I'll tell this story some other.
1: <laughs>
0: Do you want to tell the story?
1: <laughs> She's
0: heard it already. Oh, I feel very bad now. <laughs> If I don't tell you the story you're going to be after me to let you know so I think I better tell you the story so he, he saw when he turned around he saw the blimp rising and he grabbed hold of the rope and he didn't let go he didn't let go the blimp kept rising and he rose with it And he didn't let go. That was his business, his blimp. Me, mine, he held on. And unfortunately, he couldn't hold on forever, and he eventually dropped to his death. The really sad part of the story was that some hours later, the blimp landed all by itself, unharmed. This is a very dramatic illustration of a fairly simple point that me, mine, we hold on. We think we need to hold on. Now we can explore this movement of mind in our practice. We can see that in our practice when we notice craving and desire arise, that we can begin to notice it as a trance state. We can begin to notice how narrow our focus becomes. We can begin to notice how predominant the sense of me and mine becomes. We can begin to notice how we are imagining that this object is going to satisfy us in a very phenomenal way. Right now, I'd like to walk you through a little exercise, if you would, right now, perhaps close your eyes and let yourself think of something, something you really, really want, either now or in your life. don't often give this instruction, so I... <laughs>
1: <laughs> this is a rare
0: opportunity to let yourself really feel something that you want. And see if you can get very specific about what it is that is attractive to you. Is it the object itself? Or some specific details of the object? Or is it the state of mind which you imagine attaining this object will give you? Or is it something to do with an image of yourself? An image of who you will be if you attain this object and now bring your attention into your body and notice what's going on in your body how are you feeling what kinds of sensations where do you feel this wanting What do you notice when you bring your direct attention to the experience of wanting? Is it pleasant? Is it unpleasant? Is it relaxed? Is it tense? Is it a peaceful feeling or an agitated feeling? opening your eyes again. Not that there is any right way or wrong, wrong thing to experience or right thing to experience in this exercise, but just to see that we can explore in this way. We can actually bring our attention to the actual experience of what it feels like in the body, what it feels like in the mind, what kind of thoughts, what kind of images, what kind of Thing do we get created by going into this trance state? Sometimes people notice that this state of wanting has a quality of frustration or tension or contraction in it. Sometimes worry that you won't make it, that you won't get it. Sometimes anxiety. Sometimes people report feeling quite excited, quite inspired, quite Energy gets up and there's a sort of excitement, an intensity of feeling. All of this is worth exploring so that you become familiar with what this state is and you begin to recognize this is craving, this is wanting. Rumi wrote a poem called A Small Green Island. There is a small green island where one white cow lives alone. A meadow of an island the cow grazes till nightfall full and fat but during the night she panics and grows thin as a single hair what shall I eat tomorrow there's nothing left by dawn the grass has grown up again waist-high the cow starts eating and by dark the meadow is clipped short she's full of strength and energy but she panics as in the dark, as before, and grows abnormally thin overnight. The cow does this over and over and over, and this is all that she does. She never thinks, this meadow has never failed to grow back. Why should I be afraid every night that it won't? The cow is us. The island field is this world where we grow lean with fear and fat with blessing. Lean and fat. White cow, don't make yourself miserable with what's to come or not to come. It's paradoxical, but to live in a world of inexhaustible desire to be driven by craving is to live in a world of insufficiency where we're always feeling that there may not be enough this time. Rumi also wrote, those who wish to awaken consume their desires joyfully. We consume our desires not by renouncing, not by restraining, not by setting up a bunch of rules and telling ourselves we're bad if we have desires, We consume desires by understanding them, by knowing their nature and not being fooled by them. This was the Buddha's approach. So it was on the night of his enlightenment that he could sit hour by hour and as the story goes be assaulted by all kinds of desires. Every imaginable sensual Desire came to try to tempt him from his determination to free himself. What did he do in the face of this onslaught of temptation? As each desire arose, he said simply, I know you. You can't fool me. You are desire. we too can begin to shine the light of our attention and awareness on desire itself, on the way in which it moves in our minds and bodies. In doing this, we will also notice something incredibly simple and yet very important, that as with everything else in our experience, desires are impermanent. They don't last. It was quite a revelation the first time I really got that, and I think it is for all of us to see that we don't have to act on every desire, but we can notice that they too pass. What we feel is so incredibly important at this moment and an hour from now may not seem important at all. The desires are impermanent. Or, Suzuki Roshi wrote it this way. He said, renunciation does not consist in giving up the things of this world, but in accepting that they go away. They are impermanent. There's a great emphasis in this practice, in this way of being with ourselves, on cultivating contentment, knowing when enough is enough. I feel certain that many of you have had many moments of contentment, many moments of when everything is just as it is, enough, fine. We don't always notice those moments because they're usually not so intense. They don't have a lot of drama in them. They don't have a lot of me and mine in them. They're simple moments of just hearing, just tasting, just breathing. We can begin to identify them, begin to rest in them. One of my teachers put it this way. He said, Want what you have, reject what you don't have. That's simple. We also talk about the cultivation of loving kindness and generosity as being counterforces to this force of craving. Factors of mind which help to soften our our experience which help to creates this sense of greater contentment and ease with things as they are. It's an interesting question, this question of withdrawing our projections of desire upon the world, upon others, upon the objects of this world a question for you. If we withdraw our desire, if our desires come to an end, will the world itself cease to be desirable? From one point of view, it seems like the eradication of desire would be some kind of annihilation. But from the point of view of the Buddha, What reveals itself when we let go of all desire and awaken is the world of suchness, the world of things as they are, free of all of our stories about them. The Buddha said the highest form of knowing is to see everything in its suchness, just as it is. To see everything in its suchness means to see everything without attachment, without aversion. When the mind is free from these distortions of liking and disliking, then there is, in the seeing, only the seeing, in the hearing, only the hearing, in the breathing, only the breathing in the stepping, only the stepping. I'd like to close with a poem by one of my favorite poets, Ryokan, who was a hermit monk in China and lived a happy, content, and simple life. He wrote, without desire, everything is sufficient. With seeking, myriad things are impoverished. Plain vegetables can soothe hunger. A patched robe is enough to cover this bent old body. Alone I hike with a deer. Cheerfully I sing with village children. The stream under the cliff cleanses my ears. The pine on the mountaintop fits my heart. So if we could just sit together quietly for a moment. It's only the hearing, and the breathing is only the breathing. was given by Anna Douglas at Insight Meditation Society on july twenty first, nineteen ninety-eight. It is an offering of the Dharma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit Dharmaseed.org slash donate.